Hello, Bettys. Welcome to the show. Before we get to our guest today, I just wanted to let you know that we have such an epic list of guests coming up in March. We are talking about menopause. We're talking about autoimmunity. We're talking about muscle building. We're talking about recovery practices. And I don't want you to miss any of it. Even if you are listening to the podcast, you may not necessarily be subscribed. So you're going to have to manually go into your podcast app and press play. I would love for you to hit that subscribe button so that you are getting the podcast as they are released. It's going to make me oh so happy to know that you are a subscriber of the pod. You are officially a Betty in the Bettyverse. And of course, you are never going to miss an episode and be the first to know when it drops. Thank you so much. What can I do that's going to help my body be in the best position possible to have a high quality life? I want you to thrive. I want you to feel good in this body now. You don't have to wait till you get to the body to be happy. Welcome to Better with Dr. Stephanie. I am your host, Dr. Stephanie Estima. This show is for women just like you with a deep desire for learning, self-actualization, and becoming more of who you already are. Every week, we are going to deconstruct how to build better bodies, better minds, better relationships, better sex, and better families. I'll be giving you access to world-class thought leaders to help give you the tools to answer this question. What are the simplest things that you can do today to get better tomorrow? I am part geek, part magic, and want to share the juiciest questions, topics, and often taboo conversations that I think I've always wanted to be a part of and I wanted to be having. So let's get better together. Hey, Bettys. Welcome back to another episode of Better with Dr. Stephanie. It's me, your host, Dr. Stephanie Estima. And in this episode, I sat down with Holly Baxter for an in-depth discussion on female physique training and the fitness world and eating disorders, something that I think runs rampant um, in the fitness industry. And even if you're not in the fitness industry, I think this is something that to some degree, every woman struggles with. more or less, or we know somebody who has struggled deeply with this. So a little bit about Holly. She is a dietitian and a nutrition educator, and she's been involved in the health and fitness industry for more than 13 years, much of this time dedicated to providing her private clients and fans around the world with science-based information and putting up a fight against many of the misconceptions around food, nutrition, and exercise. In 2011, Holly graduated as a food scientist and nutritionist, and then went on to complete her Master of Dietetics in 2013, and she now practices as a clinical dietitian and online science educator. Holly's heavy involvement in numerous sports and strong interest in health and nutrition has led her to extend her skill set as a coach and to be well-known in the nutrition and fitness world. She's participated in several bodybuilding competitions, claiming the two-time world championship level wins in 2015 for natural fitness modeling. So we start our conversation off today talking about where she came in to uh, her early years and exposure to sport and how that influenced her views on nutrition. We then move into a conversation on eating disorders and the different types of eating disorders. We don't get into the weeds on each one, but we do touch on anorexia. We touch on bulimia. We talk about um, body dysmorphia. 
generally, um, we talk about the fitness world and how this is sort of a safe house, if you will, uh, or attracts a certain type of person to become a fitness competitor. So we talk about what it takes to, uh, prep a body for a show like this. And I share my own experiences, um, having competed in figure and the time that it takes. And Holly, uh, shares some of her, uh, experiences as well. And some of the expectations, reasonable expectations that one might have when thinking about prepping for any type of of physique, whether it's bikini or figure or, or bodybuilding. We then move into weight programmatics uh, that are female centric. So we start with some of the myths around um, bodybuilding for women or physique building for women. We talk about hypertrophy requirements, um, how one someone like Holly might structure a a workout program for someone who has some familiarity with weights, but who hasn't necessarily been progressing or getting the results that she wants from the, um, from the gym. We talk about the interference effect with concurrent training, meaning like, are you going to eat up all of your, uh, muscle gains if you are spending too much time on the cardio machine or vice versa? Um, we talk about the famous question, can you add lean muscle and lose fat at the same time at the same time? And then we also get into, nutrition. So we talk about reverse diets, what population that is a reverse diet might be appropriate for. We talk about protein consumption. We talk about diet fatigue. We talk about modifying your training and your nutrition through your cycle. We talk about volume of a program, like uh, talking about exercise programs. We talk about what is progressive overload. And we talk about the difference between mechanical uh, tension and mechanical stress and metabolic stress. We talk about volume and progress, um, and female hormones and the whole shebang. This was such a fulsome, uh, discussion, a very honest and open and transparent one. And I hope that in listening to this, you might gain some insight into potentially some psychological stress or a mindset that you might have around what it takes to build a body that you love, how we might start from a place of love right now for however our body looks in this moment uh, and the gap between that and maybe the ideal that we are striving for. So how we can we start with love? And if you or you know someone who has suffered with an eating disorder, uh, what the path to healing might look like. uh, Holly talks about her own road to healing and some of the tenants that have really helped her find body acceptance, no matter what size, um, and to really focus on what is important. I really enjoyed this conversation. I found it uh, a beautiful blend of science and evidence-based practices, as well as the softness and the graciousness that comes with healing. And I hope that you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. So without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with Holly Baxter. 
I am a huge fan of the Bio Optimizers Magnesium Breakthrough. It has seven forms of magnesium, which is going to help to transform your stress and your performance and your recovery and your sleep to the next level. I'm often asked like, well, what are the types of magnesium we should be looking for? So there's magnesium chelate and citrate and bisglycinate and malate, sucrosomial, taurate and orotate. They have various effects on the body. Bisglycinate, probably the most bioavailable and most absorbable. Malate, it's found naturally in fruits, helps with migraines. Chronic pain has been shown to help improve depression. Magnesium citrate uh, helps with arterial stiffness. It helps with maintaining a healthy weight. Magnesium chelate is important for muscle building, recovery and health, the list goes on and on. You're basically getting them all in one supplement. Each supplement itself is 500 milligrams of magnesium, which I feel is such a great dosage as a great baseline for most women. I have found a beautiful medium of actually cycling my magnesium. So I actually will take one or two of these. So I'm either getting 500 milligrams or up to a gram of magnesium, depending on where I am in my cycle. So head on over to biooptimizers.com forward slash better and use code better for 10% off of any order, but make sure that the magnesium breakthrough is in your cart. Don't be fooled by the frigid temperatures. Keeping hydrated in the wintertime is super important. In colder temperatures, we sweat more due to a higher metabolic demand of trying to maintain a core body temperature. We lose more fluids and electrolytes through our urine. We lose more water through respiration and just general breathing. And our skin dries out in the wintertime as well. We are a ski family, and over this winter, we have been using Elementee's Chocolate Medley. The chocolate chai is absolutely incredible with some boiling water, a splash of milk, and my kids love the chocolate mint with some hot water. This is our apres-ski. We cozy up with Element Hot After Hours on our cross-country trails. Now, for a limited time, you too can get the Element Tea Chocolate Medley and enjoy them hot as I have been doing with this exclusive insider bundle for you. When you buy three boxes of any flavor, it doesn't have to be the chocolate, it can be any of the flavors that they offer, you are going to get the fourth box free. If you head over to drinkelement.com forward slash Dr. Estima, you'll see that exclusive offer at the bottom of the page. That's D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T.com forward slash D-R-E-S-T-I-M-A. And tell me which of the chocolate melody you love the best. Holly Baxter, I am delighted to welcome you to the Better Podcast. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. We uh, were just chatting in the pre-chat about all the juicy things, uh, how I have probably over-prepared for our conversation, but uh, I'm very excited to have you on the show today because you are very well known uh, in the fitness space in terms of uh, being a, uh, you know, having beautiful physique and of course, all the years and the prep that has taken you to de- to develop the mature musculature that you have. And the other um, topic that I really uh, admire you for, and you've been talking more and more about it, is this idea of some of the uh, body dysmorphia and dysregulated eating patterns uh, that we do see that is quite rampant in the fitness industry. And I think in our conversation today, there's a whole whole bunch of things that I, I hope that we'll be able to get to in terms of what it means to build a body for a woman and how we can uh, create sustainable and a maintainable shape 
uh, whether that's weight loss and once you reach your weight loss goal, what maintenance looks like for you and body and full body acceptance. I'm just all that all that preamble to say I'm very happy to have you here today. Thank you so much. Uh, it is a pleasure to be here. <laughs> so why don't we why don't we start uh, at the start? Um, I know that you have talked quite a bit about your background uh, in sport, and when we were sort of emailing leading up to this conversation, uh, a lot of overlap. I too was in a lot of sport as a child. I was in relay. I did long jump. I did all the things. Uh, I would want. I'd love for you to start maybe with some of your earlier. Um, exposure to sport and how that maybe influenced your thinking around nutrition, your thinking around training, uh, and then we can we can use that as a jumping off point to go from there. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, being involved in so many different things as a child, uh, I think it has set me up for uh, a lot of uh, success, not only, I guess, in like the sporting sphere, um, as it relates to um, perhaps predisposing me to like a better baseline of like musculature uh, and strength, but then also I think uh, predisposing me to, I guess, some of the mental stamina um, and that kind of never give up uh, mentality that, you know, a lot of these like elite athletes uh, and also like top performing or high, highly successful business people, um, you know, they, they kind of take on that persona. So, um, you know, I, I really, I didn't, I didn't think of that in that way when I was young, but I can certainly reflect back now and say, um, I'm so glad that I did so many different sports. Um, and again, looking at some of the, the information and literature coming through on um, like baseline level, um, like strength and muscularity. Uh, and, you know, during this adolescence phase, like that is really, uh, in my opinion, a, a critical time for kind of laying down, you know, your potential um, for, for being strong and for being healthy as we age. So, um, yeah, I did track athletics. I did basketball. Uh, I did rowing. Um, uh, I think we probably played every sport and um, played outdoors <laughs> for most of my childhood. I don't really recall sitting inside very often at all. Um, but it definitely kind of set me up on this pathway for doing really well uh, as I got to college. But I think growing up in Australia, uh, there weren't really a whole lot of opportunities to, uh, I guess, have a career as an athlete. Um, for males, it was a little bit different. We have something called Australian Rules Football, um, which is completely different to the football here in the US. Um, but really, that was the only like big ticket, you know, you could be very successful uh, if you were, you know, living in Australia. So, of course, the natural route for me was also, okay, well, if I can't be a sports star, well, then what can I do that keeps me involved in sports? So that's kind of what um, kind of led me down the field of, you know, pursuing a career in nutrition and exercise. So I went on and did my uh, undergraduate degree in food science and nutrition, which was super interesting. I'm really glad that I did that, but it also, uh, I guess, helped me recognize very quickly that, you know, doing a, a three or a four year undergrad doesn't really take you that far. I, I definitely <laughs> got out of that and I was like, man, I'm so proud that I finished this, but whoa, I still feel like I know nothing. So I actually took a break in between my undergrad and then going back and getting accepted into the master's program 
Uh, and then I went on and did uh, a master of dietetics. So that's kind of my like sporting background and then how that relates to being in the field that I am today. Um, and yeah, it's, it's interesting. I think my day-to-day -day role is extremely not what I would, would have thought. <laughs> I'd say my role right now is like a, a scientific educator or an influencer um, with lots of practical applications. So um, I didn't start out in the field of physique sports, but by way of uh, the line of work that I did and the clients and the patients that I was treating, it was kind of just a natural progression, you know, and it was suggested to me by a friend um, and, a, and a client that I should consider doing uh, physique sports. So uh, the real driving factor for me even getting to, you know, be a world champion fitness uh, model was the world championships in 2016 uh, were going to be held in Dubai. And I had always wanted to go there. And as Australians, we love traveling. Um, so I was like, okay, well, that can be my mid-year holiday, but, you know, let's, let's make it worthwhile. So I had to win a state show. Uh, I had to win a national show in efforts to compete for Australia uh, at the World Championships for the INBA, which is a natural bodybuilding federation. Uh, that's, I'd say, probably the most prominent uh, in Australia. So yeah, I got to get all the way over to Dubai and got a taste for winning a world and I kind of stuck at it. Um, but, you know, I mean, that it all sounds very like glamorous and, you know, you're up on stage in bikini. But I think one of the things and I think we'll probably get into this today a little bit is, you know, some of the psychological uh, challenges that actually, you know, came along with that and also the, the mindset um, that was potentially driving my decisions to stay in that particular sport. So, yeah, I think maybe we can talk about maybe the, the negatives uh, that people don't often share um, that are, you know, in that are prevalent in the social media world, at least. Yeah, I think this would be a great time to dive into that because I myself, I was telling in the pre-chat um, when I was living in New York City, uh, competed in a figure competition as well. And what I was really struck by was the amount of time that I needed to dedicate and I didn't give myself a very long runway in any in any way so I gave myself eight months to sort of prep for the show and like that's good like, to most people <laughs> okay well that, okay so maybe that maybe that is a good thing but I was training it felt like all the time and then of course when and we can certainly talk a little bit about uh, for in, in my experience anyway uh, is that for most of the prep it was actually a very positive experience but then when it came to sort of the month before and then peak week like you know the amount of cal calories that I was eating and the amount of uh, and the, the hunger that I experienced the energy uh I just didn't have any energy to do anything and it was such a strain uh, on my marriage at the time and so I I wanted to maybe talk about some of the the things that we don't necessarily see because we all see the girls up on stage. We see the medals, we see the feathers and the glitter and the makeup and the tans. And it becomes for many a bucket list. Like, Hey, I want to do that. I want to get up on stage. But when you think about it, you know, and I remember reflecting after my show, I was like, I just got up on stage in a bikini, a full piece and like a one piece and a two piece. And I asked like eight people to tell me, like to judge my body and to rank me next to these other 30 women. <laughs> you know, like what 
kind of person, you know, or what, like who would subject themselves to that kind of psychological, uh, we'll say torture in a way. So maybe, maybe we can speak a little bit about, about that. I mean, that's my experience. Did you have anything similar to that? Is there, uh, what was your experience like in all of those preps? Yeah, I mean, I don't think I've ever heard anybody describe it quite as elegantly as that, but it is such a bizarre sport when you think of it that way. You know, you really are asking for people to uh, give you or assign you value or, um, and then more importantly, like compare you, uh, compare your body to another. And I think, you know, we think about, um, you know, the risk of developing uh, eating disorders, disordered eating, um, you know, young women's self-confidence uh, and their value in themselves. Um, it's really a, it's a challenging sport. Um, and I think it needs to be um, considered if, you know, somebody perhaps listening is, you know, open to the idea of maybe that they want to compete in a bodybuilding show in the future. So, um, I mean, I've always had a competitive background. So I think, I initially thought about it as a, a sport for me to, you know, exude or ex um, example dominance and, you know, just show that I can, um, you know, do the do the tough work and that I have what it takes. Uh, I can put myself through that grueling uh, contest prep process um, in efforts to come out and, you know, win a competition. So I definitely had that, that, that thought initially. Um, however, I think, you know, in, within the first year or two of getting into the sport, I definitely found myself uh, a lot more critical uh, of my body. Uh, and I definitely noticed a lot of negative um, symptoms, not just physiologically, uh, and I'll explain what some of those are, but also from a psychological standpoint as well. So since we're on that topic, um, I think one of the things that a lot of people really don't um, consider, I guess, are the sacrifices that need to be made to, you know, be successful in this sport. And, you know, like any sport, you know, when you get to that elite level, uh, it is essentially either a part-time or in many cases, a full-time job. So for the average person that's aspiring to look like or have a physique that aligns with some of these professional athletes, you know, that's a really tall order, um, given, you know, the knowledge of how much time does go into it, as you as you said, you know, I know for me and for many of the athletes that I work with, and even some of the women that just want to have a go at, you know, a, a physique competition and are trying to fit it in with their normal day-to-day -day lifestyles, the, the, the requirement for resistance training usually is somewhere in the realm of, say, four to six uh, resistance training sessions per week. Uh, there's an element of cardio. And of course, the further into that contest prep we go, uh, the more cardio is required in efforts to continue creating a, a calorie deficit. Um, and the intensity of those training sessions, you know, progressively increases as well, um, you know, throughout that uh, time span. So, um, you know, we're looking at anywhere from, okay, we, if the average resistance training session for those people is you know, 60 minutes, we're looking at, you know, five days of 60 minutes of sessions. Then for me, I had to do a planned 60 minute walk uh, to be consistent with my like a daily step count. Uh, and then an additional, say, 60 to 90 minutes every week of higher intensity. So we're looking at somewhere between 12 to 15 hours 
every week just on the training component. So we've got to think practically with my job, if you are working a normal nine to five job, maybe you have children. Uh, if you have a, a healthy relationship, you're going to want to spend some time in that relationship as well. We've got friendships to maintain, family um, relationships to, to be part of. So it doesn't really leave people, the average person at least, a whole lot of time to do that. So when we start looking for, you know, time to sacrifice, it starts to get a little bit skinny. And one of the things that, you know, it's, it's very nope, obvious. No pun intended, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, you know, I, I can't tell you the last time I've ever sat voluntarily on the couch to watch TV. Like that does not exist. I always joke the day that I moved from Australia to the US, uh, I was selling a bunch of my things and I had this great big old 70 inch TV and uh, granted I'd never really looked at the remote and the people that were buying it off me were like, can you show us how to use it? It's like a full controller. It's like a, a space shuttle. And I just laughed and I said, look, guys, I've honestly, I probably turned it on once. I've never even used the remote. So, you know, that was, that's a big sacrifice, which I think a lot of people really enjoy doing. Um, or if it's not sitting down to watch a TV show or a movie, you know, people are doing other things. They're out, you know, socializing and, you know, potentially eating and drinking out or they're playing video games or, you know, they're playing with their children. So, I think one of the, the common themes that I run into with my one-on-one -on -one clients and with our coaching team is that we have to be uh, like the person that kind of sets, sets up realistic expectations for our clients. So I do a lot of time blocking with, my, with the people that I'm working with so that I can literally look at their calendar and say, all right, well, here are your obligations. If you time block all the things that you know are non-negotiables, and then we go to, okay, what are the things that you'd still like to be able to do? And we time block those. Let's be real. How much of that time can you commit to your training? And then I guess thinking it from this, from this, the nutrition standpoint, um, maybe in the beginning of a, a contest prep, your dietary restrictions are somewhat um, easy to adhere to. You've got a lot more flexibility. So, you know, there's less planning. Uh, but the lower your calories get, uh, the longer you've been in that dieting phase, um, the, the amount of planning that's required is substantially longer. Um, you know, it's not very easy to eat 1300 calories and feel satiated. So, you know, for me, I'm sitting down on a Sunday afternoon thinking about, okay, well, I know there has to be an element of psychological satisfaction because if we don't just eat for hunger, physio physiological hunger. Um, yes, that's an important element. We need to consider dietary fiber to make sure that your stomach is feeling satiated. But what about my mind? Because if we go too long without feeling psychologically satiated, then, you know, that's when we start to run into, uh, I guess, challenges, particularly in relation to adherence. Um, and then in my case, as I struggled with an eating disorder, it was binge eating and then purging and all, all of the horrible <laughs> symptoms that kind of come along with that. So, time is a huge thing that I don't think people really appreciate. Um, and in those circumstances, if I have a client that wants to do a competition, I will kind of say to them, hey, I think it's a really great, you know, ambition. I don't want you to lower your ambitions or not set goals around your physique and improving your body and your health in general. But, you know, these timeframes that you're, ask you're asking for, and a lot of people will sign up and work with us for 12 weeks or 16 weeks, uh, and that's the only time they've allotted, 
the reality is they don't have anywhere near enough time to get what they need to do to be successful in that sport, you know, and like you did, um, you know, an eight months, in my opinion, is actually a good amount of time if you've thought it through. Um, but some folks that, you know, do need to lose a substantial amount of body fat, um, they may need, you know, a year or more, uh, not just for the, the removal or uh, reducing of body fat, but also for the preparation and time that it takes to build a substantial amount of lean body mass. Uh, and that is really difficult um, for the average person. And it becomes even more difficult the longer your training age uh, becomes. In fact, if we look at some studies, in fact, uh, I have a colleague uh, who works here at the University of South Florida who has not published this work yet, but it's a 12-month, uh, I guess, training intervention um, with variable, um, I guess, um, study terms, resistances, loads, like low volume versus high volume. And what was really interesting is that they found that after a certain timestamp, the hypertrophy doesn't keep going. It's like they reach this point of maintenance. Um, and that, you know, that's just really unfortunate, but that's the reality for people that have been training for a little while. So I probably harped a lot on, you know, the time and the sacrifice, but uh, there are also a lot of other negative symptoms um, that people don't really think about. And they would extend to uh, loss of libido. So as a woman, especially, and for males too, uh, we've seen in the, the studies uh, in natural drug-free bodybuilders that they become hypergonadal. I mean, they're no longer producing, um, you know, the adequate levels of testosterone um, that are, you know, normal for a healthy male. Uh, and the same can be said for females, you know, our testosterone levels decline, our leptin levels decline, that is our primary, you know, appetite regulating hormone. Um, and these all have fairly profound um, side effects. So we start to see difficulties with our ability to fall asleep um, and then the quality of our sleep. Uh, we start to see challenges with our mood, um, I guess, with our recoverability in training. Um, you know, we start to fatigue a lot more easily. Uh, we become more prone to risk of injuries. Um, and then not to mention the fatigue levels in general, no energy. Um, you start to lose strength at a certain point because we know that when we undertake fat loss, um, it is for a lean competitor inevitable that they will lose a certain amount of fat-free mass uh, during that contest prep. Um, and the, the problem with that is, well, now uh, we're starting to see uh, decreases in your basal metabolic rate, um, and that can in turn also impact your strength in the gym. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of symptoms that I think a lot of people kind of leave out on the social media space because it looks so glamorous. You know, you're seeing these beautiful bikini competitors, you know, on stage and it's very impressive and their work ethic is very impressive. Um, but a lot of them don't really talk about, you know, the fact that it can negatively impact a marriage, not just from, um, you know, the time that you guys get together, but, you know, your social outings together, the relationship, the connections, the things that you bond over, um, you know, they slowly start to dwindle away because you don't have that same flexibility anymore to go to your favorite restaurants or, you know, to, to be present and engaged in the conversation. Um, you know, cognitive uh, decline is pr absolutely profound and it has been for me uh, as a natural competitor, um, you know, the closer I get to uh, getting on stage and as somebody that is, you know, very active on social media, I do a lot of YouTube videos and educational pieces 
and touring and you're up presenting, you know, in front of like hundreds of people, um, your brain function is significantly impacted. Like when they say you've got like diet brain, that's a real thing. Like I was having trouble recording videos um, because I couldn't think like the words weren't coming out of my mouth. And I remember crying in front of the camera one day because I just couldn't do a basic like exit video or like a, what do we call it? An outro. I, I couldn't even get my outro to make sense. So, you know, I think, look, there's, there's a lot of benefits, I think, to helping people, you know, reduce their body fat, you know, as a whole and to being, you know, active and staying uh, healthy through, you know, resistance-based training. But like anything, I think it exists along a spectrum. And, you know, when we choose to take this to the level of a competitive athlete, um, in my opinion, the sacrifices and the, the, the deleterious impact is actually not worth it to me. And I now only choose to do one competition per year because I also have other responsibilities. I have children. I have businesses and I have relationships that I want to foster and they need nurturing and those those people it's like watering the garden you know you have to be if you want to have a, a, a fulfilling life with meaningful connections and have meaning to what you do um, you know those things all need attention and priority as well so I have definitely changed my attitude uh, and, you know, really started to prioritise what's important for me um, when it comes to this particular sport. I really appreciate your um, honesty and your transparency here because I think that this this is part of the conversation that also needs to be had if you are, let's say you have someone that comes to you with a bucket list of competing in a show or, mm -hmm. you know, or someone who uh, maybe uh, I might be speaking for you, but I can certainly speak for myself who does tend to become obsessed with things. Like I tend to very much like when I'm in, I'm all in. And when I'm off, like I'm all out, you know, like it's like, I'm sort of like a, you know, those memes about like light switches, like super interested, not interested at all. But yeah, when I'm- <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I, and I think that the, for me, when I was competing, I can speak to my own uh, experience here. Like I was amenorrheic. I didn't have a, so I got down to 8% and change, which is, I would never recommend in terms of body fat right before the show. I would never recommend anybody ever do that. I, I was, I didn't have a period for, I can't remember exactly now, call it three, four, maybe even five months. And then my liver, oh, like the, the blabs that came back, like my lip, my transferases, ALT, AST, everything was, everything was off. Wow. Um, so it was very, uh, and I really did take it to the extreme. And I found, you know, to your point around, um, you know, as you kind of get deeper and deeper into it, like I start, I was like body checking. I was like, okay, so I need to like, make sure that this little piece is like, I'm going to like die at this piece that like, I got to get it all. Like, and I was always thinking about it. Um, because it was the first one I felt like I wanted to, it was probably the only, it is the only, it's been the only one that I've ever competed in. I don't know that I'll do it again. Um, but I was like, all right, I'd like, I'm all in, like, I got to do this. I got to do it right. And the type of person potentially who's even just attracted to doing this kind of it, it is in a, in a way an extreme sport i think um maybe has something i mean i can i'll speak for myself anyway like i certainly felt like i had something to prove i certainly felt like yeah i'm okay with like 10 people judging me in a bikini like i need my external validation and mm -hmm. i i think that that's you know for women 
uh, in particular, who, you know, a lot of, a lot of the audience who listens to this podcast are female. Um, this is a area of society where, well, we'll say, I'll say it this way. Addiction, let's say, is a spectrum. Like everybody sort of, you know, poo-poos the drug addict. They poo-poo the sort of things that are shunned by society. But the workaholic, right, is the person who is lauded, you know, you know, you said their work ethic is impressive. And yes, it is very impressive. Potentially, it is dis it is it is dysfunctional as well for all the points that you were just mentioning the impact that it might have on your marriage with your children with your social life with yourself you know not being able to get the words out and i think that there is um there's a, a glorification of the beauty like the woman on on show day or the guy on show day in the bikini or in the shorts or whatever um but we don't actually talk about the after piece, which is the recovery from it. It's just like, it's in a way, it's kind of like pregnancy, right? It's like, oh my gosh, she's pregnant and I'll touch your belly and blessings and here's the gifts and here's the baby shower. And then the baby comes and nobody talks about the recovery that's required, you know, mm -hmm. and like what the woman goes through physically on the other side of, let's say, you know, a, a birth of, of a child. So, um, yeah, I just thank you for saying that. I and I feel um and and do you do you still so you said that you you compete so annually now you're competing. Do you find that uh, a lot of your clients when they are if you do have clients that are um competing in shows, do you see a trend towards losing their menstrual cycle? Is that something that you see commonly? Yeah, look, it is really common. Um, I would say there are at least a dozen women that I've worked with. Actually, there's probably more. I'd say of all the competitors that I have worked with, females, I'd say half of them do lose their cycle. The other half don't. And maybe that's a reflection of just what their end body fat percentage is. I think for the most part, I'm working with, you know, first or second time uh, competitors that are trying to strive for a pro card. Um, and in those circumstances, maybe they aren't quite getting as lean as the pros. Um, but for most of the professionals, I would say, unless they are on some kind of contraception that is, you know, it's forcing them to have a cycle, if it was right. left to their own accord and for the body to naturally, you know, produce a period, uh, I'd say those women do not in that professional space. And I actually did not have a period for five years um, as I was going through that uh, period and and that was without contraception. So it, it's really common. I think some women's natural body fat uh, percentages or their body fat set point um, is a little bit lower than others uh, for whatever the reason. And for some women, they can get a little bit leaner and they still have a, a healthy period, a regular period. Um, therefore, and then there are others that maybe their body fat percentage set point is a little bit higher um, and they lose their period almost instantly. Um, you know, as soon as we uh, initiate, you know, the, the calorie deficit and they've lost a small percentage of their body weight in total. So I guess that's a, that's problematic for women that would like to be fertile and to have a family. Absolutely. So, I mean, that's a big consideration, uh, particularly for some of the younger girls that, you know, aspire to be like these competitors whom many of the professionals are a lot older now and maybe they've already had families or maybe they're not wanting to have a family. So 
Yeah, I think it's definitely something to consider because when we put our body through these kinds of extreme measures um, from a dietary standpoint and from a training standpoint, there can be long-term consequences that, you know, some people just don't give thought to. And it took me about two years to get my period back with very intentional, um, you know, uh, interventions to get it back. Um, So, and I know it's taken longer for other women as well. It's been more than that. So, yeah, it's it's definitely uh, a concern. But I want to link back to what you said before about the the work ethic because it is glorified. And uh, I know for me, growing up the way that I did, um, I guess I could give a little bit of backstory. He said this kind of makes sense. I you know was very much an active kid. Um, I think my my mom put me in everything, and there was a lot of kind of being things were being done to. Uh, make sure that we fit in and that, you know, there was this appearances of being successful. And I don't really feel like I got a lot of uh, like unconditional love. It was very much conditional based upon my performance, not just with my sport, but also conditional based upon my academics, my accomplishments, my achievements. So because of that, I think, you know, moving from adolescence into, you know, early adulthood, um, I had this unrealistic expectation of myself to be absolutely like everything must be done perfect. It has to be done the best. Um, and, you know, I put so much pressure on myself and I'd say I'm a, a recovering perfectionist. I feel like I've done a lot better to uh, be more realistic with myself as I've gotten older and wiser and learned a little bit more. Um, but, you know, I think there is so much pressure and, with that, particularly for females, I think we have this this sense that you know if I'm not if I don't look perfect, well then I don't have any value. You know, I think society has created it in such a way that you know we have this unrealistic pressure to be super lean, super muscular, gorgeous all the time, accomplished, successful in business. We've got to be the best mother. We've got to be a great wife. And I mean, it's great that we can, we can do all these things. In my opinion, I don't want to say I'm a feminist, but I think we are the superior <laughs> of the two, the male and the female, because we've got all of it potentially if we want to do it. But should we, you know, should we really be trying to do it all? Because, you know, I, I have a lot of conversations with clients and I, I have this conversation with myself as well. Um, you know, you've only got so many spoons and I think, we all set very unrealistic um, expectations of ourselves, particularly when it comes to our bodies. And, you know, one of the things that has really helped me in my recovery journey in getting through this 15 year long eating disorder that I suffered with um, was slowing down, recognizing that I, I can't do it all. I'd love to be superwoman. And the way that I was raised, I basically was conditioned to believe that you needed to be superwoman and it was ruining my life. I was like absolutely burnt out across every spectrum. You know, I was burnt out in my business. I was burnt out in my relationships. I was burnt out trying to be a parent, burnt out in business. Uh, and then physiologically, like I couldn't do any more if I tried. So I think slowing down for me and, you know, having a little bit of self-compassion and self-kindness 
and writing silly affirmations all over my mirror in my bathroom and putting notes around like the places that I am in most like my office uh, to be, be as a reminder that I need to be gentle on myself that I need to give myself some grace and that repeated messaging and I guess you'd know better than I you know the neuroplasticity of the mind we have to condition the brain to start to change those wiring uh, processes and those those thoughts and the narrative that we tell ourselves so I think with that consistent new messaging, that new story that I'm telling myself for the person that I want to be, um, who does uh, give herself some grace and she is kind to herself and she speaks in a way that she would speak to her friends or her family or a partner, you know, that is what has really helped shift you know, the way that I do everything, uh, not just in my, my bodybuilding sport, but also like how I am in life, how I approach business. Uh, I'm just so much more compassionate and, you know, setting better boundaries with, you know, how much I do in each of these different domains that I am passionate about. Uh, otherwise, I would have, I, I don't know that I would be around right now if I kept pushing everything at 100% with this expectation of it being perfect. Gosh, I relate to so much of what you're saying. I, I feel like, you know, our parents, you know, they do the best that they can with the tools that they have based mm -hmm. on their own, you know, based on their own stories and their own experiences in life and what they think having children and the appearances of, of, of you know, raising a family should look like. So I, I certainly uh, relate to what you're saying with like the parents, you know, for me, it was kind of the same thing. Like you come home with an 85%. It's like, what happened to the 15? Like, where did, you know, why wasn't it a hundred? Where did you, why did you? And then it was like, my daughter is like, she's on the Dean's list. My daughter's on the, you know, it, it, they sort of took a lot of pride in my achievements. So I felt very much responsible for delivering on those to make them happy mm -hmm. to like the conditioning or the conditional love as you were um mm. describing and it's it's funny because for years i used to think like being this stressed out it's totally my superpower Normal. it's totally like what gives me my competitive yeah, advantage you try, to, you try to normalize it and it's, yeah. it's not okay and i think until someone can plop in and say hey uh stephanie you know that's actually really unhealthy think about your quality of life mm -hmm. um think about you know what are you going to regret more when you get to the end of your life um like being proud that you were able to be stressed out of your mind for your entire life um and no sense of happiness because you're so busy or hey you know that you had these incredible like wonderful relationships and all these amazing memories and experiences where you were able to be present uh you're not you know distracted with 500 emails that are coming through or like pressure to do this or to to have done everything to the best of your ability now i'm not saying people shouldn't strive for greatness but I think, you know, we need to be uh, at least aware of what our capacity is, you know? Yeah. And I think beginning to also unhitch the idea of, you know, we've been we've been talking a little bit about it, but the external validation of worth like that is only ever going to come from within, mm -hmm. you know, and um, I think in a society that values accomplishment, accolades, degrees, you know, letters behind your name. Uh, it can be confusing for a young girl uh, or a young boy, really, um, to really navigate 
how do I feel worthy? What's my definition of success? Mm -hmm. Right. Cause, and then, you know, you have teenagers and, you know, my kids now are one of my children anyways, sort of at the age where we feel like he probably needs a phone now. So he has access to like the Snapchats and like the, you know, I know Instagram and Facebook is for old people in his, in his opinion, but there's like, I forget the other app that he, it might be Twitch or something anyway, but they have, they have their own, there's like this, this social media piece that we never grew like I never grew up with, but I know girls now, and I'm, I'm thinking specifically of a situation from a, a girlfriend who has daughters, you know, went to a party, you know, things happened, you know, there were some, you know, some sexual activity, whatever, all got on, like someone took a video of it. It's like mm-hmm. everyone in the school get, you know, the mm-hmm. next day, everyone's seen the video and all the neighboring schools have seen it. Like there's mm-hmm. so much pressure uh, mm-hmm. to show up in a certain way, I think. And I think this conversation is so important because I think if we can begin to redefine uh, mm-hmm. what success means, and that's an internally or an intrinsically driven question uh we we can protect our you know our beautiful daughters and our beautiful sons um from some of these external forces like feeling like we need to work until like i kind of make the joke like i can work until my eyes bleed you know and it's like yeah is that really a source of pride like should i really you know as you as you said at the end of my life is that what i really should sort of like you know like stake my flag on like I was able to be stressed out 98% of my life like that's not that's there's no no one's going to give me a badge of honor for that yeah I think if someone can come out with a definition for success (laughs) I'll uh, I'll gladly listen I'm still working that out myself at at 33 years of age so yeah yeah yeah, I, I think there's value to having um you know the will and the ability to put pressure on yourself at times. I mean, there's plenty of, you know, great business books that talk about, you know, these sprints where maybe you do apply yourself for a given period of time um, and that workload may be very, like, substantial. But I don't think that that should be the the, the baseline of how we conduct ourselves on a day-to-day, you know. Yeah. Um, and I, I think when we're young, we have a certain set of values. And I know that now as I've gotten older, Uh, And I've also been able to reflect back on, you know, my own inner happiness, Um, the values that I once had, you know, that now they are shifting a little bit. Um, I am recognizing the importance of, uh, you know, quality friends over quantity friends. I'm recognizing the importance of deep connections, meaningful connections, rather than those that are just superficial. Um, Because... I guess that's just one of the things that happens as we get older. You know, you start to appreciate things a little differently than we're young. So I think when we are young, it's great to be able to thrive and push and, you know, go for gold. But I I do think that we all should have in mind um, that we need to be able to find some sense of balance. Uh, and that, that applies to our training too, you know, what we can accomplish with our physique versus maybe just having a goal that might be, you know, this is actually great for my longevity. You know, what can I do that's going to help my body, um, you know, be in the best position possible to have, you know, a nice, you know, a high quality life rather than, you know, I'm stressed and, you know, end up putting myself at risk of a heart attack or some kind of coronary artery disease or something. Right. So speaking a little bit about uh, exercise programmatics, I think this is a good, uh, you know, jumping off point into speaking about weight training and uh, exercise programming for women. This mm-hmm. is something that I speak a lot about on my platform on the podcast, which is this idea that women 
should be incorporating, particularly as we age, uh, we should be incorporating resistance training for a myriad of physiological reasons, right? More lean muscle mass means you're a better glucose disposal agent, better immune system. You know, we were talking about cognitive function, certainly uh, myokine and BDNF, like growth factors in the brain, yeah. so like maintaining brain volume. So there's a myriad of reasons. Um, and certainly you can speak, if I've probably missed a few there, but a lot of good reasons why a woman should be considering weight training. And we were talking before I hit record, uh, what would be, um, I, I think actually, uh, let's preframe this with, um, some myths around, uh, females and lifting heavy, because I, I, the question I want to ask you is if you have a woman who has, she has some familiarity with weight training, but it, it sort of extends to this, like, yeah, I've been doing 15 sets, three sets, pardon me, uh, 15 reps, three sets. And I've been whole, you know, I've been doing it with 10 pound dumbbells or 15 pound dumbbells for the past 10 years. So she's not com like, com completely new to weight training, mm -hmm. but certainly uh, there's some room for progression there that maybe she hasn't taken for either lack of guidance or more likely that there's some pre-conception pre, uh, around, well, if I lift too heavy, then I'm going to bulk. I am going to get bulky and I don't want to be bulky. I want to be toned, which as someone who, you know, has been trained in neuroscience, this is a, this is tone is usually a, a comment on neurological function. You're hypertonic, hypotonic, atonic. It's mm -hmm. not, I mean, you can certainly use it to, for myogenic tone in some instances, but the word toned, I mean, I know what they're talking about, but um, it's an inappropriate use of the word. So how do we, how do we, get beyond this mm -hmm. myth that women are going to be bulk that you're going to if you lift heavy weights you're going to be bulky yeah. and then the second to that is what what we just said how might you frame or start to think about an exercise program for that kind of woman because i i'm like 70 percent of the that that woman is listening to this show right now <laughs> <laughs> absolutely so look i think I'm not going to sit here and say, no, women women cannot get bulky. Uh, they can, um, and they can take on a, a bulky appearance. However, I guess before I lose all the female lifters, um, I think it largely depends on what a woman's definition of bulky looks like. Um, I think what most women would say um, is bulky is probably like I'm going to stereotype and say they're thinking or visualizing like a female bodybuilder. So they've got like guns blazing, uh, their abs are popping. Um, and, and that's I, I would I can uh, resonate with that. I, I don't think that I would have that desire either, though there are certainly many people that do aspire for that. And that's fine. So I think the first thing that we need to kind of establish when we're working with a client is like, what is your definition of too bulky? But what what do you what do you like the look of as well? Uh, and then there's also like the functionality and the practicality of, of muscle too. But we'll we'll talk about that later. Um, and for most women, I think you know a natural athlete, like at least I can reflect on like my own body composition when I'm getting on stage. I think most women are like, yeah, that that looks good. You know, it's not super muscular. Um, but I mean, for me as a professional, like fitness uh, athlete, uh, and I'll, we'll just generalize and say bikini, a bikini athlete, um, that doesn't just happen without like serious training. And I can say, you know, for me, I've built my physique over the course of like 10 years. Um, I've done, you know, very evidence-based uh, training interventions for about eight. 
So for the first two years, I just kind of spun my wheels and I'll talk a little bit about that why in a minute. But, you know, I think women have to understand that it takes a lot of uh, repetitions and consistency uh, and following an evidence-based approach to get to that like level of natural, you know, professional muscularity. So, um, yeah, I guess that, that would probably be my response to the first part of that question, which was, you know, can, can women get too bulky? Yeah, they can, but um, it would require a lot of work and a lot more work than what the average person is willing to put in. I am incredibly bullish on sauna as a therapy for recovery, heart health, and overall aging well. I personally decided on an infrared sauna from Sunlighten because of the range of far wavelengths and near infrared wavelengths that it offers. Saunas help with detoxification and rejuvenation to rid your body of toxins. It helps with heart health by improving circulation, reducing blood pressure, and helping keep the arteries supple. It helps with muscle recovery by easing the tension and soreness to recover faster. And of course, stress reduction with the warmth and the relaxation of sitting in a sauna. It's crucial for hormonal balance and achieving a state of well-being necessary for a strong physique and a strong mind. If you visit sunlighten.com slash better and use code better to get a discount, that is sunlighten, S-U-N-L-I-G-H-T-E-N.com slash B-E-T-T-E-R and use code better at checkout. Um, so, I guess thinking about, you know, how we would then go about programming to uh, set somebody up to acquire the natural, you know, physique that they are looking for. Uh, I guess it, it, a lot of it comes down again to the individual's availability to train and to, you know, how much time can they give to, to, to that workout program and to the, to the application of the diet. Um, most people, or most women don't eat enough. Um, and the second thing is they don't, they don't lift heavy enough. Um, or often enough. And uh, we also don't really have the uh, testosterone levels, the sex hormones that uh, are going to create the Wolverine look. So, you know, we're already kind of, there's a lot of things that women need to do differently just to get to a place where they can achieve that, like the optimal amount of muscle mass as a natural, you know, looking physique. So I think I want to back up a little bit and maybe talk about like muscle physiology. Now, this isn't my area of expertise. Obviously, my back background is in dietetics, but I spent a lot of time looking at the literature, you know, spending time with researchers. And I guess what we're trying to do, or at least the goal for most of us would be to try to increase our muscle size and then uh, our muscle strength. So if we look at, uh, I guess, muscle tissue on a more cellular level, we've got these kind of contractile tissues that kind of move back and forth and stretch. And that's kind of what helps like the muscle lengthen and shorten. Um, and then that's kind of uh, encapsulated, um, you know, uh, by the, the sarcopenia. And that, I guess, together is what we are trying to grow uh, when we're talking about building muscle. Um, and the way in which we do that, um, I guess there's a lot of talk about, um, you know, training volume being the primary driver of uh, hypertrophy adaptations, um, but that's just one element of it. So our training volume, um, you know, will contribute to that, you know, how much muscle is built. So we not only need uh, mechanical tension or muscular tension, which is the application of resistance training, um, but we also need, uh, in certain situations, uh, I guess, a sufficient or an adequate stimulus of metabolites. So it's like build up inside the muscle tissue uh, to ensure that we're kind of optimizing that 
uh, muscle protein synthesis cascade that, you know, contributes to building muscle. So um, I guess one of the ways that we can look at trying to, to do that is through lifting moderate loads uh, and moderate rep ranges. And typically we look at that through a rep range of say eight to 12, uh, maybe 15 uh, <laughs> sneaks into that rep range. Uh, we can achieve that mechanical tension uh, by uh, doing uh, high or heavy loads uh, with low repetitions. And we can also do that uh, with higher load, uh, higher repetitions and low loads. Um, and all three of those different training protocols um, will successfully um, work for muscular hypertrophy, provided we are working close to or like near to failure, muscular failure. failure. Uh, the only difference is like when we're doing, um, you know, some endurance-based strength training, you may very well have to lift, you know, if you're doing a squat, for instance, you might have to do 25 or 30 reps before you get close to that, um, you know, muscular failure. Uh, whereas if we're doing strength-based training, so anything that's under six repetitions, uh, we may only have to do, uh, you know, a few reps at a, a low, at a heavy load um, to elicit that mechanical tension necessary to stimulate that signaling cascade that leads to muscle growth. So it's been fairly established in the scientific literature that working any of those rep ranges uh, can have, you know, successful outcomes as it relates to building more muscle. Um, now, I know for me, um, my goal isn't just to be jacked, it is also to have some functionality about that. And again, I like to look at this from a longevity standpoint, like I want to grow old and be healthy for as long as I possibly can. So there's a lot of value to being strong. Now, what the research also shows is that if we want to develop and improve our muscular strength, then we do have to work that strength specifically. So it's like we kind of define, uh, I guess, strength as a skill. It's like, and if you don't do it, you lose it. So if you want to be strong, we do need to work in that lower repetition range uh, in efforts to elicit those uh, necessary adaptations to achieve strength. So uh, I like to do a combination of all rep ranges for me personally. And if my clients are open to that and they enjoy it, I'll do that for them as well. And obviously we'll get down to the more um, specifics of what that client uh, is wanting to see improve. Um, and for a lot of women, I'm probably stereotyping here, but it is, pardon the pun, it's usually their butts. So, you know, butts are one of the key things that women want to uh, to grow. Their shoulders are another area that they want to grow, like those nice capped muscular uh, shoulders. Uh, and then, you know, there's slightly less emphasis on, you know, the chest uh, as opposed to training a male. You know, I would definitely have a greater volume and a greater uh, percentage of time spent, you know, working the chest muscles. Generally, men also want to have big biceps and triceps. Uh, and that is a muscle group. Well, those are, the, those are muscle groups that I typically train or put a much, much, much smaller volume on when I'm working with females. So, I think, I hope that that kind of gives you a bit of an overview of, you know, how we can go about approaching a training program um, for somebody that's wanting to uh, add muscle um, and also maybe has the goal of, you know, maintaining their strength into later life, um, you know, which is obviously very protective for a myriad of, of different things.
Wonderfully said. Yes. I would, I would say too, um, I talk a lot about, uh, we'll call it cycling, uh, through some of these different rep ranges. Uh, I typically find that over the course, uh, for at least for women who are in their reproductive years, uh, there are certain times of the month that lifting of like doing a five rep, like doing a five rep lift is just, you know, it's usually that week right before their site, like right before their period, uh, like their bleed week starts, like they're just, they don't have, whether it's the mental capacity, the physical capacity, the water retention, you know, mm-hmm. progesterone is sort of peaking. They don't want to do, they don't want to lift heavy. So I actually find mm-hmm. that that lighter, uh, lighter load, but a higher rep range actually works very well uh, for a woman, let's say, who experiences a lot of that premenstrual uh, mm-hmm. type of distress. Um, so I do like the idea of cycling. And I would also say that if you were to... Um, kind of go to either of those extremes all the time. Like if you were always doing five or you were always doing, you know, 25 or 30 reps, that's also incredibly uncomfortable. <laughs> like it's just to do 30 reps all the time. Like I just, I mean, my workouts would have to be much longer than they are. Um, and the same is true even just for doing always like the five rep or six rep, let's say, ranges, yeah. like the amount of recovery that I would need between sets and the yeah. amount of fortitude that I would need. It's very, so I, and I know that in, we can talk a little bit about some of the, you know, let's say dimorphisms between men and women. Certainly, um, you know, women have, you know, more type one muscle fibers. So this is typically where that 15 rep range recommendation often comes from, but I like the eight to 12. And then I like to kind of, you know, oscillate between, let's say when you're at least in what I found very easy for women in their follicular phase. So in the first week or two, they can go to those lower repetition ranges, push a higher weight. And then when they're in their luteal phase, where maybe they're a touch more inflamed, water retention is higher, mood is not what it should be, even just from a neurophysiological perspective, motor cortex isn't quite as online as it was in the follicular phase under the influence Mm -hmm. of like testosterone and estrogen. Mm -hmm. Um, They do like a lot, like, you know, that 12, 13, 15 rep range is is quite nice for them. So I love the idea of, of cycling through too. I don't know if you found that to be amicable for your for your clients as well. Yeah, absolutely. And myself as well. I think um, when I wasn't getting a menstrual cycle, I don't know that I really like fully experienced the the negative symptoms that you know a menstruation has. Uh, and it was only you know when I started getting my period again that you know I really started to kind of um, implement that strategy because I could feel the effects. Now that's not to say that my clients weren't you know telling me about their cycle. Um, but perhaps they weren't giving me quite enough, you know, input as to, you know what, I actually do feel, you know, now that I think about it, you know, my like subjective, um, I guess, my subjective feelings towards my training session, they probably are, you know, it feels a lot harder. So I guess there is a little bit of research to kind of support both narratives. So I'd say there's maybe four or five studies that, you know, specifically uh, look at women um, and different training interventions within the different uh, phases of their menstrual cycle. And it kind of comes back as a bit of a wash. Um, And again, this is all just subjective um, questionnaires. Um, Some women really experience the the negative symptoms of their menstrual cycle, while others don't. Um, And I don't know whether there's any validity to what I'm about to say. This is just me speaking personally. Uh, I know that when I was at a higher body fat percentage, 
Um, I my, my menstrual cycle symptoms were significantly worse, uh, heavier, and obviously, you know, when I've got a bigger body, you know, there's a greater potential for increases in total body water. Um, I store a greater amount of water, uh, and especially as a more muscular individual, obviously, the more muscle I have, now there's greater p- uh, potential for uh, water storage within those tissues because of the extra glycogen. So. I just did not feel good around that time of the month. So absolutely for me, I do have some strategy with that. So every time I get my uh, cycle, I have my planned deloads. And I also try to be a little bit more gracious around any of my higher intensity cardio. Uh, because for, for me, I perceive it to be more difficult when I'm a little waterlogged um, than I do when I don't have all of that excess fluid, uh, you know, in my tissues and just kind of getting in the way. Like, I just feel like it impacts my contractility of my muscles. I feel like I'm just so uncomfortable. So I I really think that's a great strategy for women that do feel those, um, you know, symptoms of dieting to implement very strategically their training deloads. Um, And as you say, uh, looking at the different training uh, modalities, whether we're thinking strength, or hypertrophy or endurance, you you can play favor to that. That really works well. And I think one of the things that I do as well as you is when it comes to my period, or at least the week leading up to, um, there is no way I am putting in anything under like an eight rep max. Like, you know, the amount of psychological um, vigor that's required to attempt one of those lifts. Like if you're truly working at your rate of perceived exertion that, you know, is programmed for my session, let's say it's like a nine or an eight or a nine. So it's high. We're getting very close to failure. I know what I got to put on that bar. And if I'm got my, if I've got my period, I'm about to get it. Like I'm already distracted. I don't, I'm just not thinking as well. So the amount of focus that you need to have it almost feels unbearable. Like I would get nervous going into the gym, um, you know, prior to those sessions. So now I just don't do that. And I also know that that's not me slacking or, you know, I'm not going to get as an effective workout. That's me being smart. I can go in and I know based on the research, I can do these other forms of training that are not going to tax my, you know, Uh, central nervous system and my brain as much uh, by doing some of those higher rep ranges with lighter loads. But, you know, it might take me a little bit longer, as you said, to get through a set of 15 or 20. And I I have to remind myself, I need to be working close to failure uh, to elicit the same, you know, muscular tension. Um, And that's where when we do those higher reps, we do want to be looking for a little bit of that like buildup of metabolic um, byproduct in the muscle tissue because we haven't got enough load, a mechanical load to signal, you know, you know your uh, MPS pathways, but the repetitions and the number of reps at, you know, we have to keep going until we can get close enough and those metabolic byproducts are what are contributing to that dam- overall damage in the muscle and then we can still get the same results. One of the, probably the most, um, the gift that I've been able to give myself is tracking my cycle just for exactly what you said, because sometimes you go into the 
um, or I'll say a former version of my, uh, you know, of myself would go into the gym and I'd be at day 26 or day 27, unbeknownst to me. And I'd be like, why can I not hit these damn mm-hmm. weights? Why can't I do it mm-hmm. the way I was doing it last week? And then like the gremlin in my head would be like, you're not this, you're not working hard enough. You're not good enough. You're not all the, you're not enough. Yes. You're not enough. You're not enough. And one of the most beautiful things that I can do now is pull up my app. I'm like, Oh, I'm day 26. Oh, okay. I get it. I get it. And mm-hmm. then it's like 15 reps, 20 reps, 25, whatever it is for me to reach that RPE, let's say of eight mm-hmm. uh, or nine. And maybe just for the, uh, I've spoken about RPE, uh, uh, rate of perceived exertion before. I have also spoken about a uh, reps in reserve, maybe just for, by way of definition for uh, listeners. Uh, what are we, when you say, you know, you'd mentioned just before when I'm at an RPE of eight or nine, explain Mm -hmm. what that is i tend to like i like to think about our i like to think about reps in reserve because when i'm in the set it's like how many more do i have do i have another one do i have another one so that one is a little bit easier for me to calculate but because they can uh on the surface seem almost opposite i think it's worth just quickly defining that yeah absolutely so i guess repetitions in reserve is a little bit more absolute um you've got a definitive number of reps Um, that you're leaving in the tank. So if you program your, uh, let's say you've got a set of three three by 10 and it's programmed at an RIR, repetitions in reserve of one. That means that whatever weight or load you are choosing to put on that bar or to load up on the plate, you should only be able to do one more rep. So you should be able to get to 11 and you would be then at failure. Um, So that's very, like it's a very clear cut. You can't really like, interpret that any other way (laughs) whereas rate of perceived exertion i kind of interchange between the two i don't really have strong feelings but um basically that too works on a scale of one to ten where one would be zero effort required i'm sitting here right now speaking to you i'm doing nothing uh versus 10 would be like percept from my perception i am working 100 of what i could possibly do um of this this load for this um this number of sets so um, I, I think for beginners, it's probably easier to utilize repetitions in reserve because it is more definitive. Uh, I think the more experience you have in the gym, um, you can probably, you know, switch to an RPE. Um, but there isn't really, to me, I don't really see any strong advantages. Maybe there are. I, I may, may be missing something here. I'm not sure whether you want to jump in. But to me, there isn't really a strong difference. But that's, um, you know, training intensity for all intensive purposes is so critical because uh, I know a lot of people will go into the gym. Maybe they have got a structured program, which is excellent. You know, they've been, they've paid for something online or they've downloaded a program and it might say, you know, here's today, we've got six exercises, three sets of 12 roughly for each exercise. Um, You know, you go up, you load your bar up, you do the set, you finish the session. But if you're not being very strategic with your training intensity, then you may not be getting the most out of your workouts. And I think this is where a lot of people end up getting stuck, not making progress. So before I talked about what are the kind of key driving factors of being able to build optimal amount of muscle mass. We talked about uh, potentially metabolites, build up of metabolic byproducts um, inside the muscle tissue when you're exercising. That is usually necessary for the higher endurance rep ranges but that's not necessary in strength rep ranges because the load of the weight itself is enough to elicit the mechanical tension and damage necessary to signal those uh, cascade, the signaling cascade for MPS. 
Um, but that won't happen if you're not training to an intensity. So programs should have um, a rate of perceived exertion or a repetitions in reserve described so that, and it should be very clear to you that when you go in, this is the, the range that you should be working in because we need to be working close or to failure in efforts to get that maximal signal. Great. Let's talk a little bit about cardio. Um, you mentioned earlier in our conversation most women are not consuming enough calories. Uh, I have observed that they come in, they've been having 1100 calories, 1200 calories for decades, and they are overdoing it, let's say on the cardio. So in lieu of resistance training, they're doing too much cardio. Mm -hmm. And I personally, I enjoy, uh, I personally enjoy resistance training and lifting heavy more than I enjoy cardio. And I also make sure that I am trying to integrate some type of cardiovascular activity, whether that's a low level, uh, low intensity, steady state, like a walk, or, uh, you know, I'm just like putting around my kitchen or cleaning my house, or it might be more structured. I do have, uh, you know, I'm, I'm in Toronto, so we do get a proper winter here. So I'm not necessarily <laughs> going for a walk outside. I like to, I have an indoor, like I have a bike that I've sort of fitted for indoor. So I'll sit on the bike and I'll, you know, watch a show or whatever and, and, and do that. Mm -hmm. um, talk to me a little bit about, uh, I, I get this question, not as often, but I would, I wanted to ask you specifically, because I've seen you talk about it on your Instagram, the interference effect uh, of concurrent training. So if we are, if we are let's say a woman comes to you and says, I do have this goal of hypertrophy. So I know that what I'm doing now in my 40s is no, like what I was doing in my 20s is no longer serving me in my 40s. I do need to change something, but I just really love my insert class here. <laughs> Peloton, I love my orange yeah. theory. I love my whatever. Is there a catabolic effect if we continue to do if there's a structured cardiovascular program, uh, will we have, uh, will it take away from our muscle hypertrophy efforts? Yeah, great question. So I think that the, um, uh, the social media has probably demonized this a little bit too much, um, like as far as the interference effect goes. Um, there are several studies, I guess, that kind of uh, point out that this works along a bit of a spectrum. So whilst higher intensity interval training, so anything where you're, you know, really pushing very hard, that does have, uh, I guess, uh, a conflicting effect with your resistance training. So it directly impedes mTOR signaling. Um, again, it works along a spectrum. So what we're now, uh, I guess, my understanding based on the current literature is that provided we can give ourselves adequate time uh, between our resistance training session and then our cardio, and that time tends to be about, you know, three to four hours. And if we can add a meal to that in between to kind of replenish our muscle glycogen stores, uh, if we can make sure that we're getting in an adequate amount of protein um, to facilitate, you know, that leucine signaling cascade for which is important for building muscle, then that interference effect uh, becomes a lot less important. Um, but again, I it, it kind of comes back to the individual. So if I have somebody that is training, say, three or four times a week in the gym, they're lifting, uh, their sessions are, say, 60 to 90 minutes, 
Uh, and then they also want to do uh, maybe they have a step target. Let's say it's 8,000, 10,000 a day. Um, you know, that that's not going to interfere. Um, maybe they are also doing an hour, maybe two hours per week of some kind of higher intensity or maybe it's a moderate intensity cardio. It's probably not going to have as much of a negative impact on their recovery from resistance training as we would think. Now, if they're trying to do all of that in the uh, like a three hour window and they're going into the gym uh, because they, you know, they can only get to the gym once in the day and they're doing their hit cardio class and their resistance training, then, you know, that may not necessarily be beneficial from uh, a muscle building standpoint. And it's probably also not the most efficient way to do the cardio. And again, depending on the reasons for doing that cardio, but you haven't had time to really replenish and refuel, your body's already going to be fatigued from your resistance training. So how effective is that cardio session going to be for you? Um, and a lot of women, again, I'm going to generalize, we're using cardio as a means to maintain our body composition. So we're doing that for moderating how much body fat we have on us, right? So if you wanted to do that more effectively, you would want to split that up. You would want to have time between those sessions so that when you go back to the, to the cardio session, you are in a recovered state. You've, had, you've got more fuel back in the tank and you can exert more energy in that window of time than you would have otherwise done if you tried to back them right up against each other. And this is one of the strategies that I use for myself when I'm competing and I will do this with clients. Um, you know, during their fat loss phase, I will say to them, okay, we, we're up to say 90 minutes of total higher intensity cardio for the week. And um, they'll say to me, well, do you, do you care how I do that? What if I go and do a 60 minute spin class uh, at the gym and then I'll do a 30 minutes, you know, on my own on the stair mill? I would actually rather them break that 90 minutes down into smaller intervals. And why might you ask? I don't know about you, but I know when I've done my Peloton, which I do often, after the first 20 minutes, I'm starting to really feel the effects. I cannot go 100% and I can see my efforts, my total output uh, is going down. So if you are trying to do your cardio as a means of, uh, I guess, helping with fat loss, which requires a calorie deficit, that means that we'd want to be doing that cardio in such a way that you're energy expenditure is as high as it possibly can. So I would recommend to clients to break that 90 minutes down into maybe three 30-minute uh, sessions instead, uh, rather than trying to do a full 60 minutes. And then the last 20 minutes of that spin class, kind of not as effective because you're dead. So you'd get more energy expenditure by breaking it up into shorter periods. Now, over time, the more cardiovascular fitness you develop as we adapt to that stimulus, yeah, you're going to get better. It's going to get easier and you can go harder for longer. But, you know, there, there's always adaptations taking place. So um, I, I still use that rule of thumb, even for my most fit, you know, girls that are competing and they're doing a lot of cardio. We still try split it up as much as we can. That's practical for their lifestyle. We split it up morning to night. And uh, there's never a time when I've said, I want you to back it all up together uh, because you're just not, neither of the sessions are going to be as effective as possible. And it's not the best for building or retaining muscle mass. And I suspect if your clients were wearing a heart rate monitor, they would also see that absolute dysregulation that happened. I, I know when it's time to stop my cardio, when mm -hmm. I can't seem to keep, if I'm, mm -hmm. if I, if my aim is a zone two, let's say, or, you know, okay. zone two, three ish, uh, yeah. training and my heart 
is just jump wanting to jump. My heart rate is wanting to jump into four or five. It's like, all right, I've reached my maximal aerobic capacity today. It's time to cut it. Yeah. And I think, um, yeah, just speaking to the heart rate, that's one of the variables that I will have clients and myself. I still track that when I'm on my Peloton. Um, That's kind of my preferred mode of cardio at the moment because it's very convenient. I don't have to go anywhere to do it and I can do it whenever I want. Um, But as I get fitter, particularly through a contest prep, and I've done more and more of that cardio, um, because we're losing mass, um, we now have less mass to carry and therefore we don't expend as many calories. So that same 30 minutes of cardio that I did at the beginning of my diet um, is no longer costing my body as much at the end because I'm now a smaller body. There's less energy requirement or demand. Um, and then I'm also getting fitter. So what I see is that that same 30 minutes of cardio, my heart rate isn't getting up as high anymore because I'm getting fitter. I'm adapting to that, um, that level of training. So not only uh, as you diet, do you need to uh, consider the decreased energy expenditure throughout that period for decreases in lean body mass and total mass, we've now got to consider the cardiovascular adaptations and that you need to go harder, increase that level maybe on the Stairmaster to a higher level just to get your heart rate up to that point again so that you can maintain a similar output. So, you know, these are all just little things. It's not really like the most important thing, but um, as a whole, you need to look at all of those metrics because, you know, that's one of the reasons why people plateau and they're like, I just feel like I'm doing everything. And, you know, there's tweaks that we can make to to really ensure that they continue to achieve their goals. Yeah. From a, from a nutrition standpoint, uh, we've been talking about uh, a lot of hypertrophy, mechanical tension, uh, metabolic um, uh, tension. Um, mm-hmm. I think for a lot of women, particularly, and I'm speaking to the demographic that typically listens to the show, let's say they're in their 30s or their 40s, maybe their 50s. And, you know, to that like 1100, 1200 calorie, uh, you know, diet that they've been following for decades. One of the things that um, I will do with private clients is I will talk to them once there's been some rapport established, because we don't jump right into a reverse diet, but uh, I certainly it oh, is. You don't? On, I do. <laughs> are you? Oh, well, I bow down to you because I feel like I feel like I have to kind of warm them up a little bit. They ha- there's like some establishment of trust because there's there's a uh, and maybe you can speak to this, but I find that there's like a psychological uh, resistance, constraint, something when you start talking about a caloric surplus with women. So I need them to almost trust me first. Like, Liz, I promise you, like, this is going to be maybe slightly uncomfortable a little bit, but I promise you that we have to, like, if you trust the process and you stick it out, that this is going to be one of the best things that you do for yourself. Um, so maybe you can give me some tips on being a coach uh, in that way. But uh, can we um, speak a little bit about the value of me? A re- a, what a reverse diet is and mm-hmm. how that might be used as a uh, as a as a proxy to help bring a woman well teach a woman that she doesn't need to be or let's say overcome the metabolic adaptations that have happened to her over over the time that she's been in this supposed caloric deficit mm-hmm. yeah so I think first off I, I probably need to preface this with what is the need for a reverse diet in the first place. So um, there are several groups of individuals or like populations that would benefit from a reverse diet. 
Um, and I guess the general concept is, and I'll also explain how this differs to a muscle building phase in a moment, but a reverse diet is basically this concept of the slow and gradual reintroduction of calories. It's very calculated over a given period of time to allow for positive metabolic adaptations to take place. So the same way that our metabolism adapts in a negative direction when we're undergoing a fat loss phase, our, we can recover that through this process of reverse dieting by slowly adding back in calories. Uh, and one of the ways that we can also do that um, if we don't necessarily want to play with um, our, our nutritional intake is we can use our cardio as a means of encouraging positive metabolic adaptations as well. So just for an, just as an example, and I'll paint the picture so it's really clear to understand, um, I might have a client that is uh, extremely busy. Let's say she's got three kids, she runs two companies, and uh, I guess she doesn't have a whole lot of time after this initial fat loss phase that we've done with her. And uh, I guess she's time poor, so she says to me, Holly, I'm really struggling at the moment with uh, you know the amount of activity that I've had to do throughout this fat loss phase. Um, like what, what can we do to get rid of that? So in that situation, I might start the reverse diet, um, you know, at the calorie target that she is on or at her current maintenance calories. And instead of giving her a little increase to encourage or incentivize the metabolism to move in a positive direction, I might say, okay, well, we're just going to take away a little bit of cardio. And that decreased energy expenditure from exercise acts as the positive driver of adaptation. So we can do it from diet and exercise. Um, and it's it's a little bit of a craft, but I, I feel like I've got it down to a knack. Uh, I do have some of that info in our, our reverse dieting book. Um, for anybody that wants to learn more about that, we have a, a really great book that dis discusses this in great length. So I guess there are a lot of populations, like I'm saying, that would benefit from having more calories and a better metabolism. Um, so we might have like an athlete that is, uh, you know, competing at a high level or it could be any athlete, someone that just does sport recreationally and they want to do better. Um, you know, if, if they've got more energy available to them, they may actually see that their performance improves rather than trying to manage on a, a lower, you know, calorie target. So that would be one group that a reverse diet would be beneficial for. Um, another group might be, you know, the, the woman that's been crash dieting, yo-yo dieting for years on end. Um, and unfortunately, every time she's dieted, you know, rebounds extremely quickly uh, because she's been in such a compromised state metabolically that when she does go back to just eating a normal amount of food after her restrictive diet stage, um, she regains a, a bunch of body fat every time in between um, because there was not enough time for the metabolism to get back up to that calorie amount. So, you know, for someone like that, they may be burning the candle at both ends. You know, they're already on nothing as in calorie wise, they're not eating enough at all. And they're doing so much exercise, but they still want to lose body fat. That's the type of client where I say, I'm sorry, I cannot do a fat loss phase with you. I just can't. It would be unethical of me to, I mean, I can give you air <laughs> for your, your calorie targets. So, you know, they'd be great for a reverse diet. Um, and then just the person that wants to have more calorie flexibility to be able to eat more food. I mean, I like food a lot. And if I can eat more of the fun stuff as well as the good stuff, like that's a, that's a win for me. I'm, I'm a foodie. So, you know, there's, there's lots of different, and there's groups in between that as well, but essentially we just try to slowly reintroduce calories and we can do this uh, at different uh, speeds. And again, that would depend upon the individual's preferences for 
allowable body fat regain. So there is inevitably going to be a point where you cannot push your metabolism beyond this threshold. And if you keep pushing the calories in or taking away exercise and you're in more of a positive energy balance, you will put on a bit of body fat. So that is a normal part of the reverse dieting process. But if we do it in a conservative way that's very moderated, we can basically take your calories up to a place that feels a lot more sustainable uh, and get your metabolism to a better place without unnecessary body fat regain. And a lot of the time people end that diet, they're in such a restricted state and their uh, metabolism is so adapted to those low calories and to a crazy amount of exercise that they try to go back to just 2,000 calories after being on 1,100. And that doesn't seem to me like a lot of calories still, but they put on too much body fat too quickly. But if they had done it slowly uh, in a controlled way, they would have mitigated a lot of that unnecessary body fat regain. So I guess that's like the principle of a reverse diet. Um, there is a little bit of, uh, I guess, uh, confliction against some of the evidence-based professionals in this space because we don't have a whole lot of research on this. Um, the, the information that we've published in our book takes from two key studies um, and then all of our anecdotal uh, information from our clients. So we actually took, I think we had about 60 clients, 50 clients or 60 clients, uh, and basically ran an analysis on that and gained a lot of insight into, you know, average weight gain, total weight gain, total lean body mass gain, fat mass gain, uh, and, and, and then also what was the percentage increase in calories through like a 20-week reverse diet. And it was really, really interesting. I won't go into all those details. You can find that in the book. But um, I guess the key difference between a reverse diet in my eyes and a building phase, which essentially is kind of staying in a small surplus to uh, elicit hypertrophy, is that in a building phase, there is a requirement for weekly weight gain. Whereas in a reverse diet, we may see a calorie, we might, might take the calories up, but there's no demand or requirement for a weight gain. In fact, I will have certain clients um, that we've taken the calories up by a certain percentage and they've lost weight that week. So in the case of a muscle building phase, immediately you would jack up the calories even more so that they weren't losing any weight. Um, so that's kind of the distinction there. Um, and one of the reasons that the, the weight loss can often happen if we're doing it slowly as per the reverse diet approach um, is that because the body is adapting in a positive direction, it's almost like the body goes, oh, she's giving me more fuel. Oh, great. So you almost overcompensate. So now your NEAT goes up, your non-exercise activity thermogenesis, your incidental movement is increasing, um, and then it almost overcompensates to the point where it puts you back in a deficit and they lose weight. So, you know, that that's a reality. And I think some people have run with that notion a little bit too far and have kind of promoted the reverse diet as a way of losing weight. I, I wouldn't do that. Uh, I think that's an inaccurate or misuse of its purpose. Um, but it's a, it's a really effective strategy. And I think it's a way that helps women, especially, particularly those of us who have struggled with body image. Um, you know, we, we have a fear of body fat regain. Um, it's a nice way to approach uh, improving your metabolism and adding muscle without this fear of, oh my God, every week I'm going to be putting on all this weight, regardless of how much fat I put on. So it's essentially like a more conservative building phase, if you will.
And I, I think it's important when we think about the value of a reverse diet, because from, you know, you mentioned before, you know, you, we have clients who like they diet down and then they're in such a, you know, caloric deficit or the state of, uh, you know, where they are taking their calories in and calories out uh, is is very skewed to one way. And then they'll start once the, you know, the wedding happens or the big event happens, they just go back to eating the way that they were. Well, from a teleological or from an evolutionary lens, it makes a lot of sense that the body would primarily favor making most of that caloric surplus into adipose tissue because it's like oh my god there was just a famine everything that this everything that she gives me now i'm just going to tuck it away for a rainy day and i like the reverse diet approach where we are just slowly you know stoking it let's say um mm-hmm. where you are overcoming what you were just in describing some of these metabolic adaptations like the basal metabolic rate and our digestion and our natural uh mm-hmm. sort of spontaneous yeah, yeah. uh non-exercise activity thermogenesis like just the calories that we're burning and you know mm-hmm. spontaneously doing every day you overcome that by mm-hmm. slowly increasing um your calories mm-hmm. um we started the conversation at the top of the hour uh well, more than an hour now, but started at the top of our conversation at uh, talking a little bit about eating disorders. For a reverse diet, you do have to be, especially for some of these women who are not very tolerant to adipose tissue gain, we do have to be measuring, we do have to kind of have a relatively good sense of what those calories uh, that she's taking in or he's taking in. I'm just saying she because um, that's the person that I, I typically work with tends to be female. Would you would you um, uh, engage in a reverse diet for, let's say, a woman who maybe has a history of uh, eating disorder uh, disorders or or body uh, dysmorphia in some degree, or if she was not in a regimented resistance training program? Hmm. Look, I think um, my my primary um, focus would honestly be on getting to the underlying why. Um, you know, I think, you know, sometimes an eating disorder is a symptom of something else. I know for me, mine was a symptom of past trauma. So I, for me as a, as a dietitian, like I can't sit here and say, yes, I can treat uh, somebody that has an eating disorder or a disordered eating background. Um, I'm always going to be incorporating the use of an allied health professional, somebody that is clinically trained to, you know, provide psychological intervention for somebody that is suffering with that. Um, I only speak to it from my own personal experience. And I've also worked with therapists like personally, I think I'm going on four years pretty much consistently every week. So I feel like I've, I've experienced a lot of like personal, um, you know, insight into that. Um, so, yeah, I guess in conjunction with a therapist, I, I'd probably, you know, hop on a team call and decide, you know, what is the best, um, you know, approach to this patient's care um, that's going to help her move in a positive direction. So, you know, during that that therapy, she would likely be working on getting to the bottom root cause of where this has stemmed from. Um, you know, a lot of the times it is something that's traumatic that has kind of elicited a person to go into this you know, need for control or, um, you know, it's their, it was their coping mechanism to manage some kind of stress or past trauma. Uh, and then it kind of cascades into and spirals into this, um, you know, inad- inadequacy of oneself unless they are really lean uh, without any body fat. So there's a whole psychological piece that really needs to be addressed. 
Um, and then from my side of things as how I would look at uh, providing nutrition and exercise intervention, it would be a very gentle, uh, you know, approach to reintroduction of resistance-based training. Um, you know, I would be pointing out, you know, the myriad of health benefits, um, you know, in the now and in the long term that, um, you know, can, can take place if we are consistent with some resistance training. So, to be honest, I would still be approaching this no, not too dissimilar to how I would work with somebody that doesn't have an eating disorder. Um, I guess sometimes there be I might be a little bit more resistance to to the nutrition, but that's where you know it's so important to have that psychological intervention working together um, to help somebody really believe that like you are beautiful as you are, you are worthy, you are valuable, um, and you know the scale does not get to dictate how much fun you get to have on the weekends with your friends. You know it's 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 such a process and. I don't know that a reverse diet would be successful if we didn't also have, you know, all of these other things kind of happening, happening simultaneously. What you would probably find is I would say, okay, we're taking your calories up this week and there'd be just resistance. You'd be like, no, I'm not going to do that. So it would still effectively work the same. Um, but you've, you've got to have somebody that's willing, um, number one, to, to change. Uh, and then part of that is kind of helping educate them about the benefits, um, you know, of having a high lean body mass. I mean, if I, if I had a, and I'm somebody, I had an anorexia for probably seven months of my life. And then it quickly became, because I was so active, I, I couldn't maintain it. Um, it then became binge eating and bulimia purging. So had I known about this concept where, hey, you know, you could actually eat a little bit more and you wouldn't gain body fat, you wouldn't have to purge, I might have been more open to that because nobody, I mean, I can sit here and say I was so unhappy. Like I was suicidal at this time when I was, you know, bulimic and, um, you know, binge eating. Um, that That's a traumatizing experience in and of itself. Um, I remember like just sitting in my bathroom, like crunched over the toilet bowl crying um, you know, it, it's still traumatic, but that was, it was so, it was driven by something else. So if I hadn't known that there was this process available to me that could mitigate or like minimize the amount of body fat that I was going to put on, I would have absolutely done it. Would have been difficult, but I think it would sound better than going to the regular dietitians who, you know, they'd say, all right, we're putting you on 3000 calories. We need to fatten you up. You know, that sounds terrifying as it is. Like all of us should have the desire to put on as much muscle as possible. So I think it's a really good approach because. And meet the client where they are. Sorry to interrupt you, but I think if someone said to me, we're going to put you on a 3000 calorie diet and I already have some dysregulated thoughts mm -hmm. around eating. I have some body dysmorphia. That is not meeting the patient where they are. Like you're not mm -hmm. going to be very successful with that approach. They're going to slowly mm -hmm. or quickly run out of that room. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. 100%. Um, I didn't get to ask you this uh, earlier. So I think this is a good time to ask. What was your own healing journey like from this? I mean, anorexia, bulimia, you know, I'm thinking about this 
you know, beautiful, young, impressionable girl who, you know, I'm talking about, you know, younger Holly, I'm talking about younger Stephanie, I'm talking about all the women who are listening, who like just wanted someone to like notice them, make them feel loved, make them feel appreciated. And like, you're perfect in perfectly imperfect in all the ways that you already are. Like, you don't need to impress me. You don't need to, what was your, what was your healing journey um, like from that, I, I can't imagine that it was, that it was easy. Mm, yeah. Um, I honestly avoided the idea of healing for 15 years. So I, my eating disorder started when I was about 15 years old. Um, and that kind of stemmed from uh, a lot of family conflict uh, and being raised in what I would consider a narcissistic environment. I kind of mentioned before, there was a lot of pressure to you know, keep up appearances to be the best. Uh, and then there wasn't a lot of that love on the back end, like everything was, you know, an outward appearance. So that was going on for me. And then uh, a couple of negative comments about my body uh, by my, my trainer at the time. So when I was competing um, in athletics, I was told, you know, you need to get a little bit leaner, you need to be more like and I was compared to an Olympian track athlete at the time whom he also coached. And I think those two things combined, plus with some other traumatic like sexual uh, experiences, um, that was kind of the, the tipping point for me when I was like, I have no control of my life right now. Mm -hmm. um, and the only thing that I can control is what I put in my body. <laughs> so, I mean, that's where it started. And mm -hmm. I think, you know, moving into this career that was nutrition science, you know, exercise focused, um, I felt a lot of shame, a lot of guilt, um, a lot of, uh, I guess, it was a deep self-loathing and I was so embarrassed to even share what I was experiencing with anybody. Um, and I definitely didn't want to change my body. I think that was the only little sense of control that I had during those really volatile, um, like I'd say it was like turmoil, <laughs> um, you know, those years of my life. And uh, it kind of stayed with me for a long time. And I think you know, acquiring therapy and as, as a, a college student or a, at university, I did not have the means to get myself therapy. And I also like we didn't have the access to social media that we do now. And I didn't have the resources or the mentors or the positive influences in my life that were directing me to here's a free resource and it's kind of relevant for your age. Or, you know, have you seen these cool books written by these other women, female doctors? You know, I just didn't have the access to the resources to help my own self-healing journey, let alone go to a professional. So I think by the time I kind of got to a point in my professional career where I had means, and that really was only like starting to be maybe 25, so about eight years ago, um, I started therapy in Australia um, and that discontinued. And then I started again here in the US and it really opened my eyes to a lot of the the troubling uh, experiences that I had. And I, that was when I first learned that, wow, my eating disorder was a symptom. I, I didn't, I didn't just have an eating disorder. I never viewed it like that. I, I didn't even know where it came from. I was like, I'm not really sure why I do this. I don't know why I hate my body and why I want to control it and why I don't think I'm valuable uh, until, you know, someone that was wiser than I said, you know, you've, you've had a hard life in many ways. You've also had a very, um, a good life in other ways as well but you know you're there's a lot of psychological suffering so 
um, I guess with repeated therapy and then the desire to live a different life. Like I, I've been su suicidal multiple times throughout my adult life. Um, and even up until very recently uh, at the end of last year as a, as a 33 year old. Um, and I think it, it really just, it forced me to take action. You know, I, I knew that I, I, I had a lot of value and that was only through going to church. Um, I didn't grow up with any religion. I grew up agnostic and I didn't have any religious people in my life to kind of show me the way. Um, and it was just by way of grace of God, I guess I found uh, a non-denominational church here in Tampa and it it was the first time I'd ever even considered the idea of becoming like someone that's spiritual. And that I truly say this, and it's so hard for me to reflect back on this because I was not spiritual. I, I used to like joke about meditation and, you know, other practices like that because I was so science-based. Like I was like, I can't have spirituality and God with science. Like, no, these things don't go together. Um, and now they fit, uh, it, there's, they go beautifully together. Um, and I think, you know, realizing that I had value and that was only through going to church and that I am enough and that I am loved and I'm cared for and that I have a purpose in this life. It's not to please other people. It's not based on my performance and, uh, you know, my accolades and what I do. Like I have a purpose and you are a worthwhile human that it really launched me into the self-healing journey. And I must, just this year, I must have read 30 books. And I can tell you that that is more books than I probably read in a five-year span prior to this year. And it was really recognizing my own value um, that has allowed me to stand up to uh, a lot of, I guess, negative influences in my life. And take back my life and I have the desire now to be the best person that I can. I want to be the kindest person that I can and I, I don't want to ever, you know, be the person that was raising me. I want to, I want to take all of those experiences and those negative experiences and make sure that I learn from them. How can I do that better? Um, so all of my, um, I guess, healing in addition to the the work that I was doing with the therapist has come from reading myself from, you know, unfollowing pages that didn't make me feel good or that didn't align with my values of, you know, the growth mindset. I follow so many pages now uh, and I listen to so many podcasts that are super positive. Every morning I get up, I start with my day with a ritual of I'll read a couple of chapters out of, I've got this, I guess it's a Bible scripture program that I, I found um, I'll journal and I'll take notes and then I'll listen to something that is really positive or that fills my mind with something that is just in, in inspires me and it motivates me to be a, a better person today. What can I do today that's going to make me move in a forwards direction? So, yeah, I had to take that on myself. Uh, no one else pushed me to do that. It had to come from me and I had to get to rock bottom suicidal as you know just very recently uh that it basically god was going to church was the last straw for me and it was like my uh, I, I feel like i was born again truly i guess that's one of the things that they say about surrendering your life to god um that changed my life like getting really emotional talking about it like it truly truly changed my life and i i don't i wouldn't be alive today if it wasn't for that
Wow. Well, thank you so much for that. I think that's so beautiful. And what you're demonstrating, of course, it's kind of what we were talking about at the top of our conversation, which is when you can, when you can unhitch that external validation Mm-hmm. And it just comes from within, which is mm-hmm. kind of what we've all been searching for all along. Yeah. You know, it's like, like the, um, you know, it's like when she says in uh, the Wizard of, uh, is it the, it's like, you just had to click your heels twice. You were, and you could go home at any time. You know, it's like, yeah, mm-hmm. that's, that's what it was. We could have, we were all wearing the shoes. We could have just, you know, we were already home. And mm-hmm. I think finding a home within your, mm-hmm. within your body, um, mm-hmm. you know, arguably the, most important temple, right? Right. The most, the the only home you'll ever have, right. Is the one uh, with your, at least in this life, your current meat sack. I think when you can kind of uh, find some reverence and some love for that body and what that body is able to do for you um, Mm -hmm. to, you know, menstruate every month, eventually, Mm -hmm. if it's a choice of yours to have children or not to have children or to squat or to, you know, just take you to the grocery store and Mm -hmm. go to sleep every night and wake up. I think that that um, when we unhitch the uh, need for that external validation and it's intrinsically generated, I mean, that's Mm -hmm. like you are Mm -hmm. in your 33 years, man, like some people spend a lifetime looking for that. I know. And I think that's one of my like missions. And I think for this, the new coaching company that I just started is uh, I think I've had a lot of negative experiences with men, unfortunately. And I don't want to say that all men are bad. I know that there are some uh, amazing men out there, but I, I really feel like there are so many women that can relate to some of the things that I've gone through in my life. And um, my new goal moving forward is to create, um, you know, products and services that are built by women that are specifically for women. And, you know, everything that I do moving forwards now is utilizing my own personal experiences and some of the trauma and stress that that I have uh, experienced. And now couple that with the knowledge that I have in the evidence-based space for exercise and nutrition science and try to find a blend of, you know, it's okay to strive to be, you know, to be better. And it's okay to strive for better health. Um, but, you know, also recognizing this inner value that you already have and trying to help women re- appreciate their bodies, how they are right now in the moment as they're working towards these other goals. Um, and they don't have to be exclusive of one another. You know, I had a lady say to me just yesterday in a client check-in, she's a new client, She's like, when I said to her, you know what, Uh, I want you to love your body right now. I want you to love everything about you. And we're going to work on that, you know, during this process. And she said to me, ah, I don't, I don't know if I can do that. I I think, you know, are you telling me that I can't keep, I can't do this goal or you're not going to let me do fat loss? And I said, no, we can do these things together. I just really want you to believe that you can love your body at any point in your life, whether you're. 30 pounds heavier than your your best or maybe you know you you stop training and you don't get to have that you know that luxury of being in a gym every day like imagine if you couldn't lift you know you need to be solid in yourself so we're putting those things together so I'm executing the science for the diet for the exercise to move you in this positive direction of like health and well-being but I can't just ignore your 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 mental health I want you to thrive. I want you to feel good in this body now. Um, you know, they don't, you don't have to wait till you get to the body to be happy, you know. 
So that, that makes up a really big element of, of what I do. And of course, in the cases of someone that is struggling with a disordered eat, uh, an eating disorder or disordered eating behaviors, um, you know, that's when we also need the extra support. And in this new team, I'm so excited uh, to be able to have under the one umbrella access to all of these people. You know, we have our own rehabilitation expert. We have our own exercise scientists that are putting together programs. Uh, we have the dietitians. We've got the people that are there helping with their, um, you know, their, uh, I guess, body positivity, their self-love and the, the healing process that needs to happen up here, you know. So plug uh, the new company, where can people find you? And mm-hmm. um, certainly we'll have your Instagram and your reverse dieting. You've mentioned a few times the reverse dieting book. We'll have that in the show notes. But where mm-hmm. else can people find you if they want to uh, interact with you more? Yeah, so I am I'm most active on Instagram and YouTube. Um, and then I guess all of my links are uh, in those in the bios. But my website uh, at the moment is uh, hbnutrition.com. Uh, .au. And uh, I guess on the first of the year, uh, we've just hired an entire team and they all be- they all begin, I guess it's January 2nd. So I've just had a crazy two months of going through hundreds of resumes, uh, hiring a team of what I know is going to be just incredible women. Like they're the best in their, uh, I guess, uh, rep- respective fields. Um, they're all and have all had similar issues and struggles as I have, and maybe as you have as well, Stephanie. Um, so, you know, this this team is, it's it's like my passion. And I, I just feel such a overwhelming connection with it because I know that there are going to be so many women who will benefit, you know, moving forwards by working with this collaborative team. So, um, yeah. <laughs> Beautiful. Well, we'll make sure that that's all clickable links in the show notes. Holly, this has been such a wonderful conversation. Thank you for your transparency, your honesty, your openness, uh, your experience, your time, your focus today. It's just been a delight. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I uh, really, really appreciate the opportunity to, to speak with you. All right. All right. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. And I must give you the obligatory legal and medical disclaimer here. This podcast, Better with Dr. Stephanie, is for general information only. And the advice, recommendations we discuss do not replace medicine, chiropractic, or any other primary healthcare provider's advice treatment or care. In the consumption of this podcast, there is no doctor-patient relationship that has been formed and the use and implementation of the information discussed are at the sole discretion of the listener. The information and opinions shared on this podcast are not intended to be a substitute for primary care, diagnosis, or treatment. In other words, guys, be smart about this. Take it with a grain of salt. Take this information to your primary healthcare provider and have a discussion with him or her to make the best choice that is for you. Remember, I am a doctor, but I am not your doctor. And these conversations are meant for educational purposes only.